Hi, my name is Trevor O'Keefe, and I'm the pastor at Olive Branch Christian Fellowship. We're a Jesus-loving Bible church who are committed to studying the words of Jesus, walking in the ways of Jesus, and partnering in the mission of Jesus. Thanks for joining us on that journey today. Now, if you have a Bible, if you'd open it to Habakkuk chapter 1, and if you'd stand when you get there, uh, then we'll read together. Um, So Habakkuk 1, uh, verse 12. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have appointed them for judgment. O rock, you have marked them for correction. You are of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. Why do you look on those who deal treacherously and hold your tongue when the wicked devours a person more righteous than he? Why do you make men like fish of the sea, like creeping things that have no ruler over them? They take up all of them with a hook. They catch them in their net and gather them in their dragnet. Therefore they rejoice and are glad. Therefore they sacrifice to their net and burn incense to their dragnet, because by them their share is sumptuous and their food is plentiful. Shall they therefore empty their net and continue to slay nations without pity? Chapter 2, verse 1. I will stand my watch and set myself on the rampart and watch to see what he will say to me and what I will answer when I am corrected. This is the word of the Lord. You can grab a seat if you haven't already. You know, my least favorite question as a parent is the question of why. I mean, it's not so bad. It can be a little irritating when your kids are little and really they're asking why inquisitively about pretty much everything. But as many of you can probably already attest, things change a bit as your children get a little older where their question is no longer necessarily an inquisitive why, where they assume naively, although it's cute, it is naive, they assume that you have the answers to all the mysteries of the universe. No, something changes at some point in time where there's a new version of their question of why, and their new why is really questioning your competence, your wisdom, your reasoning, your capability as a parent, That is what you start to notice is in the crosshairs of their questions of why. There's this subtle shift that somehow takes us all by surprise when our our children, they go from asking us a million questions to questioning our every move. And you can pray for me because we are in that transition as a family. But you know, the end of Habakkuk chapter one actually records a question that the prophet asked God, but in the In the original Hebrew language, it actually is abundantly clear that it's less of an inquisitive why that he's asking, so much as it is that Habakkuk is questioning God's goodness and character and wisdom. Look again at verse 12, where he asks, are you not from everlasting? He's asking God, are you not limitless and infinite? And Hebrew, though, it really reads as a rhetorical question which you know a rhetorical question is never a request for information, it's really better described as a punishing statement. Pastor and author Timothy Keller, he summarizes Habakkuk as saying that I thought that you were infinite. You are supposed to be great God, infinite, wise, everlasting, but you're not. The late Australian Hebrew scholar Francis Anderson, he writes, Most of the 96 occurrences of this Hebrew word in the Bible are vigorous, are used in vigorous human arguments. 
What he points out is that this Hebrew word that's used here that Habakkuk brings to God was one that was typically used when someone was expressing profound disappointment or disillusionment with their opponent. Again, quoting Anderson, he says, nothing could be more abrupt than the beginning of Habakkuk's second prayer in verse 12. There is nothing like it anywhere else in the Bible. God is not being approached with courtesy and respect. Habakkuk is in absolute anguish. And if you were with us last week, you'd actually remember why he's in anguish. Remember, Habakkuk in this moment as a prophet is not functioning like we'd usually think of a prophet to to function or, or what they would do, where they would speak to the people on behalf of God. No, Habakkuk's kind of doing the opposite, where he is functioning as a spokesman on behalf of the people, bringing his burden to God. The prophet's frustration that he brings is the injustice that he sees, and yet he's not seeing God do very much about it. But it was God's response to his initial question that served up really the ultimate gut punch for this ancient prophet, where God responded, chapter 1, verse 5, remember saying, be utterly astounded, or be stunned or dumbfounded. God is saying, this is going to shock you. You might want to sit down for this. Oh, yes, Habakkuk, I see the injustice and rebellion in my people. And yes, I'm going to do something about it. But what I'm going to do is to bring a more rebellious, a more wicked people here to overthrow my own people in order to humble them and take them away into captivity so that my people will turn away from their wickedness and turn themselves back towards me. In fact, he tells you who he's raising up. Verse 6 of chapter 1, he says, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, who he says would come with violence. That that would be why they would come. You see, this is the point in the story where then the prophet's anger seems to get redirected towards a new target. He's now angry with the God that he's been appealing to. How could God consider using such a wicked and evil people to come in an act of just judgment over his own people? How could God use something so dark and wicked, use a people so dark and wicked, choose an action so terribly unimaginable? The great Canadian-American preacher and author H.A. Ironside, he writes it this way. He says, in Habakkuk's case, he was amazed that God should deal so with the sheep of his pasture as to give them into the power of the wild beast of the nations. You see, we're in this series looking through this little minor prophet Habakkuk that we're calling When God Doesn't. And today we we entertain the thought of when God doesn't stop evil and suffering. And I want to briefly discuss in talking about that larger topic, I want to discuss the prophet's question here, but then I want to discuss God's response and answer to the prophet, and then I want to wrap up by us entering into the tension of this very question of, God, why don't you stop evil and suffering? So we will begin first by talking about Habakkuk, the prophet's question. You know, there's very detailed ancient documentation for the rise of the Chaldean Empire, which by the time they came to power, they would come to power through a series of alliances and would finally be called, not the Chaldeans, but would be known as the Neo-Babylonian Empire, the Neo, the New Babylonian Empire, the rebirth of Babylon. Those alliances were necessary if they were going to overthrow their predecessors, who were the Assyrians, whose capital city, the prophet Jonah, would reluctantly walk through in Nineveh, calling them to repentance, which they did, 
However, it was short-lived. There's a second prophet that goes about two generations or roughly a hundred years later. His name was Nahum, and he would revisit the ancient capital of Assyria, bringing judgment down on them, telling them, you've rebelled again and God has had enough. Babylon would then be the world's new superpower, and we will find them all throughout the pages of Scripture in the Old Testament being talked about, especially because of the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar's friendship with another young prophet by the name of Daniel, who is believed to be a contemporary of Habakkuk. But before the Babylonians, the Assyrians are remembered in history as really the first real global empire, and they are known throughout history as being masters at warfare. But they would fall to Nebuchadnezzar's father, Nabu-Palazar, which is another fun name, and his newly aligned coalition of people groups. And the reborn Babylon would take their place not only as the new world-dominating empire, but you should know, historians are very, very clear for us, that they also would take their position as the new, new cruel masters of warfare. History tells us about their spear-wielding cavalry that was known to run straight through ground troops. History tells us of their ingenuity that would lead to the use of siege ramps that you see actually mentioned in chapter 1, verse 10, and to wield battering rams that they would use to break in through the gates of their enemies. The, there are even ancient depictions that you can go see in the British Museum of some of these men looking to attack the castles and fortresses of their enemy and swimming into the moats using the skin of a pig to hold air so that they could swim beneath the water in order to go under the moat and reach the wall using it as a basically like an air canister, which is really disgusting. I hope they cleaned it well. But using it as an ancient air canister in order to get to their enemies. Listen, these people are even known for impaling, dismembering, and even flaying alive their enemies. And Habakkuk now, he complains saying, and you, God... You're now going to let us be caught like fish in a net, he says in verse 14, by those evil, merciless people? This is your great plan? You know, isn't it interesting, though, that when you see Habakkuk wrestle with God here, you find him bringing his questions and even bringing a challenge to God, and yet what you didn't even find a hint of is him leaving or losing his faith in the process. He brings his questions, but he doesn't use them as an excuse to run or to leave God. They instead become a catalyst for greater intimacy with God. They're the reason that he runs back to God. They're the reason that he even says, I'm not going anywhere. I'm going on a watchtower to sit and wait for you to respond. In fact, look again, chapter 2, verse 1. I will stand my watch and set myself on the rampart and watch to see what he will say to me and what I will answer when I am corrected. I'll go to the watchtower, he says. I'll stand atop the rampart, the top of a walled city. So he climbs up to a high vantage point to see danger in the distance. He's going up to a higher place to get a different view of what's coming on the horizon. Now, I don't know if he literally climbed up a tower or this is meant to just be viewed as an allegorical statement. But either way, what he's really saying to God is that he doesn't see or recognize how this makes sense at all what God is saying he's going to do, but he recognizes something else, and that's that God has a vastly different perspective than he does. And he's saying, I'm going to go sit somewhere where I can receive your perspective, where I can begin to understand why you do things so different than the way that I would do them. So Habakkuk will wait for God to speak and reveal his own perspective to him. 
Can I just tell you, this is really something that I hope is your experience when you come here every Sunday. That, yeah, you might come in here, you might come in here burdened and bewildered, unable to make much sense out of life, but things shift when you come together with the church, with the people of God, and begin to pray and to worship and to open scripture together. I hope that this is what you experience, that you find yourself having a whole new vantage point for the things that you're working through and wrestling with. As you see and remember that our faithful God is, in fact, good. And as you remember that he is always up to something. I hope it's not just when you come together as a church. I hope every morning this is a part of your your rhythm and pattern is that you sit alone with God going up to the watchtower saying, God, here's what's going on in my life, but I want your heart and I want your perspective. Oh, I hope your quiet time of, of speaking to God and then opening scripture to listen to God, I hope it feels like, it functions like you climbing atop the watchtower to gain God's perspective on life in a broken world. You see, for the prophet to bring his complaint to God like he did, it shows both a freedom to be raw and honest with God, and it reveals a faith that still remained in the prophet as he waited on God's response in this moment. And my hope is that both those things would be present here, a freedom to be raw and honest, and yet a faith that's willing to wait in the tension. You see, today we are discussing when God doesn't stop evil and suffering, and that was the the problem, the question that the prophet brings to God. But I want to now look at God's response to the prophet. So look with me at his response, because more shocking than Habakkuk's bold question that he brings And even his persistent faith that he didn't allow that question to drive him from God, but to drive him to him. Even more shocking is God's response that he gives to the question the prophet has been wrestling with. Look again at verse 2 where it says, Then the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision and make it plain on tablets that he may run who reads it. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it will speak and it will not lie. Though it tarries, wait for it because it will surely come. It will not tarry. The first thing God tells him to do is to document this. Document this moment in time. Write it down, he says. Listen, it would serve that present generation as a reminder that the suffering that they would endure was something that God had warned would come upon them because of their own rebellion and hard-heartedness. Because of their own unwillingness to yield to him. You see, the text even seems to indicate that there are individuals who would run throughout the kingdom with this message printed out so that they could make sure that everyone was aware that there was a coming judgment and destruction that was looming, and it was because God was responding in just judgment to their rebellion. Listen, it would also serve that generation who would go into captivity as a reminder that their suffering would only be for a season. Because God will give a series of five woes. These are warnings from God that are addressed to the Chaldeans, to the Babylonians. In them, he says, chapter 2, verse 8, Because you've plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you. He makes it clear that this will not last forever. At some point in time, Babylon will fall. There's another ancient prophet who had prophesied during this time, and he'd even put a time stamp on it of 70 years. Listen, God told the ancient prophet to write it down, not just for them, but I think even because it serves us today, a future generation, as we see a gracious God welcoming the questions of his struggling prophet. 
Remember, as we observed previously, Habakkuk is the Bible's invitation to bring our doubts and questions to God. But notice with me, before God will even begin his series of woes against the future Babylonians, he makes this incredible statement here, aimed at his own people who will face life in a broken world that will get much more difficult than it had previously been, and much more difficult before it gets any better. He says it in verse 4. He says, Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by faith. Please hear me. If, if you know nothing of Christianity, then be introduced today to its uniqueness in that simple statement, that the just shall live by faith. You see, in some religious circles, the just must practice the five pillars of Islam. Or in other circles, the just, they, they must observe and adhere to Sabbath rituals. In every other religion and religious circle, the just are justified. They're made right before God by their own efforts. That is how they reach nirvana, or that is how they attain enlightenment. That's how they grab a hold of salvation or earn the right to a future in heaven with God. However, in biblical Judeo-Christianity, the just are justified. They're made right with God, not by their actions, but look what it says, by their faith. Listen, if you know nothing of Christianity, be introduced today to its uniqueness in the simple statement that the just shall live by faith. You know, if you were a part of our church a year ago, we actually, at this time of year, we are in the book of Galatians. And, and so this statement, if you've been with us, probably already is ringing some bells for you and bringing some things to memory. You might remember in Galatians chapter 3, verse 8, where Paul makes this mysterious statement that the scripture foresaw something. He writes about the scriptures as if describing a living, breathing person because he viewed the scriptures as the living God actively speaking to his people. So what did the scriptures foresee, he said? Well, in chapter 3, book of Galatians, verse 8, he says that God would justify the Gentile world, that he would declare them right and righteous by faith, not through the keeping of the law. Again, Galatians chapter 3, verse 11, it says, but that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. Here's the truth. Human experience and nature, human nature itself, will teach you that you have to work to earn the approval of other people. We'd expect then that we would have to, if we need the favor of God, that we'd have to earn that favor with God through the keeping of his law. However, the scriptures tell us that favor, the favor of God, our being right and righteous in his sight, is something that we receive by faith, not something that we earn through human effort. And we see this as a biblical theme. This amazing otherworldly reality first is seen in Genesis. It's then sung about in the Psalms before God would speak it clearly through this ancient prophet Habakkuk. We're there in chapter 2, verse 4. God instructs him, write the vision that I'm speaking to you. And he begins that vision with the statement that the just, the righteous before God, will live by faith. Paul will quote that statement in Galatians, as well as in Hebrews and Romans. You find it in Galatians 2, leaving modern scholars to now refer to those three letters as Paul's trilogy, with each of those serving to open and exposit Habakkuk's statement here that the just shall live by faith. 
In Galatians, Paul will expose the roots of Habakkuk's theological statement, which is his confidence, the ancient prophet's confidence, that this is how God has always worked with humanity, beginning all the way back with the father of the faith, Abraham himself. In fact, Galatians will quote from the book of Genesis, chapter 15, verse 6, where it says, And he, Abraham, believed in the Lord, and he accounted, he imputed, he reckoned to him, he credited to him righteousness. He believed God and God's promise to him, and therefore his faith made him right with God. The Greek word accounted is found all over ancient papyri that's being unearthed. It's found on business accounting documents where someone requests that their wealth, or at least a portion of it, would be transferred to another's account so that they had the ability to make a purchase. Okay, think of the imagery. It's true in my life, like a bank account. My accounts were at a negative. But the death of Christ would pay for that penalty and bring my balance to zero. But the beauty is that the perfect life of Jesus would place credit and merit into my account in the eyes of God so that I'm not just at a zero balance not owing God, it's that I now have limitless credit, that my accounts are stock full, that the righteousness of Christ is seen in me, that I not only no longer need to fear God, it's that I with confidence know that I please God because of what Christ did for me. Do you hear me? I don't just no longer owe God. It's that I please him now. I'm right and righteous in his sight. Jesus took all that was broken and rebellious about me all the way down to my broken identity, all the way down to my sin and my shame, and he exchanged it. And when he exchanged it, I was given the identity of the prince of heaven, his wealth and his home, his authority and his identity as a son. Slow down for a moment and think this through. If someone were to ask you, how is a person made right with God? What do you have to do to be right with God? What would you tell them? Because scripture has always been clear that you cannot do anything to earn God's favor and right standing with him that you must receive, you cannot earn, you must receive the gracious gift of his unmerited favor by faith. You see, the law of God is great for what it does, but we must be clear on what it does. Oh, does it justify you? Does it earn you brownie points? Or does it, like a mirror, expose you to the real you? Does it show you your flaws? Does it show you your brokenness? Because that's how the Bible describes it. And in doing so, does it show you your need for a savior and substitute? Listen, if you depend on what you do in order for you to feel confident that you can approach God because you have his favor, then you're saying that Jesus didn't need to die. This isn't irrelevant, I think, for us. This is really the most important question in life is do you have right standing with God? And and you might today have walked in here more concerned about if you have right standing with the IRS or with your spouse or even your children or your boss at work. But this question of do you have right standing with God is an eternal question. Don't worry. Don't think of your church attendance card or getting a gold star because you, you take a quiet moment before every meal to pray. Oh, don't think, well, if I write a check to the church, no, no, no. Abraham merely believed God and it was accounted to him, right? Standing with God was not accomplished by him. It was accounted to him. 
We cannot accomplish righteousness. Sure, we can try by comparison, but our comparing ourselves against each other is kind of a garbage practice. It leaves you either wallowing in in self-pity or walking with arrogance and pride. No, when we're going to compare ourselves to anything, it's to be to the perfect law of God, but it crushes us. See, the gospel of grace is clear that you can have your own account and your own gold star chart, or you can have Jesus's, but you can't have both. You see, God's accounting is not pretending. It's accounting on behalf of Christ's performance in your place. And I am now fully accepted, fully embraced because of Jesus' performance. You see, if someone had asked you, how is a person made right with God? What do you have to do to be made right with God? What would you tell them? My hope is you'd point to the scriptures and say, the just shall live by faith. That Abraham believed God and it was accounted, it was reckoned to him for righteousness. You see, Abraham and the Old Testament saints, they were looking ahead to a future deliverer, a promised savior who'd come and bleed and die. We look backwards today to a a crucified Christ and a resurrected savior there in Calvary. Listen, if you know nothing of Christianity, be introduced today to its uniqueness, or if you know it well, be refreshed today by the reminder of its uniqueness in this simple statement that the just shall live by faith. But before we move on to talk about our own tension over the topic of suffering and injustice in the world, I want to point out to you that the remainder of God's message to Habakkuk is actually a song of sorts, that those who'd been plundered by the Babylonians, are promised to one day mockingly seeing over them when God brings a just judgment against them. Look at verse 6, chapter 2, verse 6. Will not all these, those plundered by the Babylonians, take up a proverb against him and a taunting riddle? The New American Standard Bible calls it a song of ridicule against him. And say, woe to him who increases what is not his. How long? And to him who loads himself with many pledges, will not your creditors rise up suddenly? Think of that. Will not your creditors rise up suddenly? Will they not awaken those who oppress you? And you will become their booty, their plunder, their spoil. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you. Because of men's blood and the violence of the land and the city and of all who dwell in it. You see, the Babylonians had long thought that they were taking the spoils of war as they went on conquest. But God is just and referred to what they did not as them taking what was not theirs, but as them borrowing something from a creditor. And that creditor, God, is saying here that he's going to come to call on those accounts. You know, your Bible says that we should not be deceived because God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, he also reaps. And that's what God is saying here. In the remainder of this prophetic declaration of God's future justice that will come, it's directly aimed at Babylon, even mentioning their high nest in verse 9 of chapter 2 that wouldn't protect them from future destruction. There's a Greek historian, Herodotus, who noted that its walls, the walls of Babylon, were over 300 feet high and 80 feet thick, wide enough for a four-horse chariot to ride atop it. And the ruins of those walls can still be seen, but the Babylonian Empire cannot be found because its destruction did come. 
God doesn't just stop with depicting them as birds, though, determined to safely nest outside of harm's reach. He also describes them as wicked slave owners in verse 12, who built their city on the backs and with the blood of others that they treated as an object or tool in order to construct their new cities. God said, you thought you built a city that would last, but really what you've constructed is a bonfire that will burn because I will be just. God even explains that judgment will will come on them because of how they sexually exploited other people in verse 15, and even how they treated creation in verse 17, where he references that they destroyed the cedar forest in Lebanon, and that they senselessly killed animals, and that God would hold them accountable even for how they treated not just the image bearers of God, humanity, but even creation itself. And God puts a final exclamation mark on his promise of judgment to close out the chapter when he mockingly says to them, hey, you trusted idols that you crafted with your own hand. You waited for them to speak to you and and to give you direction. Oh, stand by and listen. Now you're going to hear the living God. Here's how he finishes. Look at chapter two, verse 20. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. You see, the remainder of this prophetic declaration of God's future justice is directly aimed at Babylon. However, however, his prophetic promise of future justice, it would echo far beyond the Babylonians. Look at this massive statement and this prophetic promise God makes that has implications that stretch far beyond the rise and fall of Babylon. It's found in verse 14. Where in verse 14, God's speaking, he says, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. It's beautiful if you fast forward 600 years from this moment in time, or roughly 600, you'd arrive in the moment where the sky was filled with the glory of God. As Luke chapter 2 describes it, the angelic hosts, they filled the sky over the shepherds, praising God and saying to them, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace on whom God's favor rests. But God will not rest at just his glory filling the sky in that moment. No, fast forward now 2,600 years, and we are still waiting for the day on the other side of God's just judgment of all creation that comes when he returns to the earth as a just judge. When one day then the glory of God will cover the whole earth as the final chapters of the Bible record it for you. Revelation 21 says it this way, And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. My friends, we're talking today about when God doesn't stop evil and suffering. And we've discussed the prophet's question and then God's answer. The prophet's bold question, and you are invited to boldly bring to God what weighs heavy on your heart. And then God's answer, and I want you to see that God's answer was that he would, in fact, be just. But his justice would come as a shock. May I remind you that the greatest shock of a move of God's judgment and justice on humanity was the shock that the divine God who created the universe would take the place of sinful man on a cross. But I want to wrap up by taking you to to go with me to sit with this ancient prophet in the tension 
of living in a broken world, of looking at life in a broken world and asking the question, why doesn't God intervene to stop evil and suffering? So let's shift gears. Listen, I'd assume that all of us would agree with the observation that we live in an imperfect, broken world that's marred by suffering and injustice. There's pain and evil. There's slow Wi-Fi and traffic and Swifties. There's sickness and broken families and abuse. There's atmospheric rivers, apparently, that we've learned about here in San Diego in the last couple of months. There's wildfires and mental illness. There's mass shootings and cancer and death, which leaves us with a deep question of if there's a God and he's good, then why is there evil and suffering in the world? So would you explore this with me briefly as we land this plane? Our first question we'd really have to answer about this is is we'd have to ask and answer first, did God create evil? If you're taking notes, I'd like you to write this down because I'd like you to wrestle through this. Did God create evil? Because some would draw the conclusion that either God isn't real or isn't really good because if God is really God, all-powerful, and if he's really good, then he would have created a world that would have been good rather than the evil, broken one that we live in. So people ask the question, well, where did evil then come from? Did God create it? And why, oh, why won't he step in to stop it? You see, the Bible, though, teaches us that evil is not a thing that God created. It's rather a departure from the way that things ought to be and were created and intended to be by God. Although God created everything, evil is not a thing. It's the privation of good, just as darkness is not a thing, nor was it created. Darkness is the privation of light. God did, however, make mankind with a free will. Oh, you remember in the garden, as God started the creative process, that God stepped back at the end of each day of creation and pronounced that it was good. And at the end of making man, he even said it was very good. And one of the very good things he gave to humanity was free will. Having freedom to choose between opposing options, morally speaking, is a good thing. Even an atheist would agree with that statement that freedom is good. That's not connected just to a belief in a benevolent God. No, all of us would agree. It's why you do not see people marching in the streets, either here or abroad, where they're protesting, saying, take away our freedom. Subject us under an oppressive government. I mean, look at us, how soft we were. We were ready to take to the streets when someone said we had to wear a mask. We're like, nope, not today. Freedom is something that we highly value. People march for freedom. They don't march for suppression, saying, please suppress us and dominate us. No, because we understand that it's a good thing, that free will is a gift that should not be taken. But evil originated because an angel in heaven named Lucifer misused and abused the great privilege of free will. As he became puffed up with pride, and when his rebellion in heaven failed, he brought that rebellion down here to earth in order to make an attempt to hurt God by hurting those that he loves, by destroying their lives in eternal destinies. You see, that's why evil originated, but evil continues because of what humans did in the garden and what we continue to do with our free will. Evil's presence and effect are not the fault of God, though, because he did not create evil. God created a world with no cancer, with no death, with no pain. Mankind shattered and skewed the perfection of what God designed, though. But Jesus came promising, behold, the day is coming where he says, I make all things new again. 
My friends, God is no more to blame or responsible for evil's presence in the world than the man who fabricated the car key that sets now in your pocket, that turns the ignition and gives life to your car. No more is God to blame than that person who made that key is to blame if you were to leave here and recklessly choose to go and drink an excessive amount of alcohol and then get behind the wheel of a car, plowing it into an unexpected crowd of strangers. Listen, the man who fashioned the key, he simply crafted the key that when turned gave life and power to something, something that you then may use in a terribly destructive manner. But who would be held responsible in a court of law for turning the car into a a careless weapon? Would the car manufacturer be called in? Or the alcohol distributor who delivered the alcohol to the local grocery store? Or would it be the man or the woman who simply shaped the car key in some distant factory that you have in your pocket? Or would the person who selfishly got behind the wheel and used their free will in such a reckless and destructive manner, would they be the one to be held responsible? You see, so much of the time we say, if God is good, why is there evil and suffering in the world? Well, God's not to blame for what this world has become. Evil exists as a result of mankind's rebellion, our departure from the way that God created and intended things to be. You could say it this way, that God is, yes, responsible for the fact of free will, but humanity is responsible for the act of free will, what we've chosen to do with the gift that God has given us. But why doesn't he stop it? That'd be the second question. Did he create evil? Here's the second question I think you have to wrestle through. But why doesn't God stop evil and suffering? Well, what would you like God to do about it? To stop evil and suffering in the world, he'd have to stop the people who cause the suffering. So I guess it's up to us then to categorize who are the people who cause the suffering. Well, obviously the people who commit murder, they'd make the list. The people who physically harm other people, people who steal from people, people who lie and tarnish people's reputation. I mean, that's a big one. But what about even people who say hurtful things to other people? Because we see just how powerful and damaging words can be. You see, now I've got two problems for you. Haven't we all caused someone to suffer on some level. See, the first problem is that I'm guilty too, but I'm still left with the problem of what am I proposing that God does about the evil people who cause suffering in our world? I guess what we're asking is that God would take away free will when we're using it in a destructive manner, but then it's not really free will if you're only free to choose if you choose the right choice. He would either have to snuff you out of existence, which maybe seems a bit harsh when you're about to say something unkind or do something that would harm the reputation of somebody else, or he'd have to, in that moment, step in and take your free will, causing you to function like a robot, where you do what you're commanded and not what you actually want. Listen, if everyone that causes suffering is evil, then God has to stop literally everyone which means that our human existence would come to a screeching halt in a moment's notice. And please know that the Bible is very clear that that actually does happen in the future, that God will step in and put an end to suffering once and for all. A day of reckoning is looming, it's coming. When when God will right the wrongs that man has committed, where things will once once again be the way that God created and intended them to be, It's what we read of in Revelation 21, where God wipes away every tear from our eyes, and we live with him forever, where there is no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, he says, for the former things have all passed away. But here's the question we have to answer. But is it neglect 
Or is it mercy that God is yet to bring the day of reckoning? Because the Bible actually tells us why he hasn't done it. Why he's waited until now at least before bringing a day of reckoning. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says that the Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he's being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. Let me ask you a question. How many of you have been a follower of Jesus just since the turn of the millennia? Just since, I don't know, the, the last 24 years you came to follow Jesus? Raise your hand for me. How many of you in the last 10 years? have begun to follow Jesus? Raise your hand high. I think it's important. How about those of you in the last five years? You know, here's the other thing. Put your hands down. If God delayed so that you could be included in his eternal kingdom, I think it's worth it, even if we've had to suffer. And can I tell you, I'd assume that there are some in this room who still are on the fence of what they think of Jesus. And I will say to you, I think suffering and waiting is worth it if you make a decision for Jesus that affects you for eternity. Oh, God's not slack concerning his promises, as some people think, that he's just delaying and waiting, but he is desiring that no one would perish, but that all would come to repentance. I'm glad that God is merciful and has patiently waited this long. Listen, before we move on and close, I do want you to know that I don't believe that God is the cause of all of your suffering. I think that there's this natural tendency inside most of us to react to suffering and say or at least think, well, why God? What did I do wrong? Why do I deserve this? I think there's even a broken thing in us where we look at other people who are suffering and we start to assume, well, what did they do wrong? What did they do to deserve this? There's a very well-known pastor here in the States who a couple of years ago, after a series of natural disasters that devastated communities and took human life, he wrote something and posted it online saying that God was the source of their suffering. And the reason that they suffered was because of their sin and that this was God's hand of judgment on an entire community, on those families and individuals that died. And I'll tell you, when I read that, my heart sank. Because yes, God can create and use even a natural disaster. Look at the story of Jonah. But why would I assume, much less dogmatically state, that God caused this? That God brought judgment and suffering in your life because of what a lousy job you've done? I don't believe that God is to blame for all of our pain because I don't believe that he's the cause of all of our pain. We live in a broken, sinful, fallen world that is not functioning the way that God created or intended it to function. Jesus himself would face a freakish storm in Mark's gospel in the fourth chapter with hurricane force winds. And when he stood up, his instant thought and conclusion of the matter of why he was facing the storm was not seen in him standing and saying, why God? Or Father, what did we do to deserve this? God, why would you send this on us? No, it says in your Bible, he stood up and rebuked the wind and the wave with the same verbiage that he used two chapters before when he rebuked a demon that possessed a young man. Jesus' default mode was to look at brokenness in the world and not to blame God, but to say there's something evil and terrible, the consequence of sin all around us. Which means when a natural disaster hits, I don't blame or assume that it was God's hand of judgment in response to sinful people. We live in a universe that's been splintered by the sinfulness of man and no longer operates the way that God initially created it to. But the hope of the Christian, of me as a follower of Jesus, is that one day the Prince of Peace, that the Prince of Peace will return and bring peace and order. 
It means that when someone is molested or raped or when their health deteriorates or when their job or income are lost, that I'm not quick to blame God for the pain because I think we'd be wrong in assuming that it is always God who causes pain in our lives or that the pain that we endure is him venting on our mistakes. No, we live in a broken, sinful, fallen world. Our spirit is housed in a broken, sinful, fallen body. We are surrounded by broken, sinful, fallen people. But my hope as a follower of Jesus is that one day he, the Prince of Peace, returns to bring peace and order amidst the chaos again. Listen, I picture Jesus when tragedy strikes, who sighed deeply within himself when he saw those who were suffering brought before him, who groaned so loudly that those who had gathered around him could hear it. Jesus, who was moved with compassion when he saw the world's brokenness. Oh, you could see it in his face. You could hear it in his tone. You could feel it even in the tears that streamed down his cheeks. Please, please, please hear me on this. I'm not saying that all of our suffering is caused by God. But I do want to say to you today that all of our suffering can be used by God. That is the hope of the Christian. In Isaiah 61, Isaiah writes that he will give a crown of beauty for ashes, a joyous blessing instead of mourning, festive praise instead of despair. Or Romans chapter 8, verse 28, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Please hear me say scripture doesn't say that God is the cause of all of our suffering. However, it is perfectly clear and promising that God is more than capable of redeeming and using all of our suffering. Oh, we're asking, but why doesn't God stop evil and suffering? And I've learned over time that if I have a God that I believe to be big enough and powerful enough for me to be angry at for not intervening to do what I'm confident, he is more than capable of doing then I also have to admit in humility that he also is far greater than I am in his infinite wisdom and may have reasons for doing or allowing things the way that he does rather than doing them the way that I want him to. Author Timothy Keller says it this way, just because you can't see or imagine a good reason why God might allow something to happen doesn't mean there cannot be one. Quite possibly the most important question, though, we must ask and answer on this topic is, does God even care, though? Does God even care about our suffering? You can close your Bible. You probably remember the moment in John's Gospel where Jesus heard of a friend being sick, but by the time Jesus would arrive there at his graveside, he wouldn't greet a friend who was ill. He would greet the closed stone that had been rolled in front of the grave. What he'd be greeted with was a real mess. It was the man's sisters, Jesus' friends, weeping and mourning. They said to him, if you had only been here, Lord, this would never have happened. And in that moment, John eleven thirty five 35 says that Jesus wept with them. It's an incredibly powerful verse because God in the flesh is weeping. The flesh that concealed the glory and power of Almighty God is trembling and wet with sorrow's tears. And in that moment, be certain, Jesus did not weep for himself because he missed his friend because he had just told them that he would raise him from the dead. He didn't weep even for Lazarus because again, he had said he'd have new life. He wept because those that he loved were overcome with sorrow and grief. He wept because their sorrow struck his own heart because he looked and saw the devastation of what sin causes and has cost the world. That is why his heart broke. 
You see, Scripture tells us that God is near the brokenhearted in Psalm 34, that he is the God of all comfort who comforts us in our affliction in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, that he is a high priest who sympathizes. He, he cares for us in all of our hurts. He suffers with us in Hebrews chapter 4. Listen, we suffer and hurt and weep and mourn knowing that God stands with us and cares for us, but even more importantly, we know that God has done something for us. You see, I'm not just comforted that God cares. I can suffer and mourn with hope because he came. Oh, I can question his care and his goodness and justice when I suffer. I can say that this isn't right and that this isn't fair. I can be frustrated and ask God, why didn't you heal or intervene or help or stop that? But God provides not the answer to the intellectual dilemma, but the resolution to the problem itself. He didn't give an explanation for, from heaven. Heaven itself came here. He gave himself. God came to suffer and die to rid the world of sin, sickness, suffering, and death once and for all. And I have to tell you that there are moments in time that I don't always feel that God is off the hook for the human suffering that I see around me. It can still hurt and be so overwhelming to look around and see, much less in my own life, to feel it in moments. But in those moments, I have to remind myself that God placed himself onto the hook for the world's suffering. He didn't have to, but he did it anyway. He suffered to save me from my sin and to end suffering once and for all. Oh, no, with certainty, he's not too weak to do something, nor too wicked to intervene. No, he sent his one and only son to redeem what was lost and to restore this world to its prior glory, a glory free of suffering. As John 3, 17 says, For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. I wish that following Jesus gave us an explanation for every time we suffer, but it doesn't. But it does leave me confident every time I suffer to know with confidence and certainty what the answer is not. The answer is never that God doesn't care. He cared so deeply that he bled and died on a cross. You see, you and I can come shoulder to shoulder to God with the same fears and concerns and questions that the ancient prophet came. We can come angry and close-fisted rather than open-handed. But we look to a cross and an empty tomb. We look to a God who did answer and whose most shocking act of judgment and justice was when the God who created the universe would step under the divine sword of justice and let it strike him first instead of us. And so Jesus, we thank you that though we suffer and though we look at life in a broken world and find ourselves stuck in it, that Jesus, we look towards a savior. We look towards a prince of peace. We look towards a God who was drawn to us in our hour of need. Jesus, there is a looming day of judgment that we do know is coming. But what an incredible gift that you have taken our judgment upon yourself already. That we, the justified, are made so because of simple faith. Jesus, it may not cost us anything, but we recognize it costs you everything. And so, Jesus, today we thank you. We thank you for your love and your forgiveness. But we thank you also for the hope that we have, even in the midst of life in a broken world. A hope that we have that one day wrongs will be made right. And one day the glory of the Lord will cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. In Jesus' name, amen.
Thank you again for listening to the Olive Branch Christian Fellowship Podcast. For more information about our church, go to olivebranchcf.org.